when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. This week, I'm talking to Qualcomm CEO Cristiano Amat. Now, I've known Cristiano for a while now. He was the president at Qualcomm before he became CEO this past June. And he has always been a relentless cheerleader for what mobile computing can do for people, especially if that mobile computing is powered by Qualcomm's chips. And Qualcomm's chips are in basically everything. The company's wireless products are in virtually every phone. Actually, they're in every 5G phone. And its Snapdragon processors are in every major Android phone. Then it has lines of business in cars and servers and VR headsets. You name it. The company is everywhere. But relentless optimism can only get you so far. Like every other company, Qualcomm is dealing with a supply chain crunch, a global pandemic, and skyrocketing demand for chips that's led to widespread shortages. On top of that, it's facing some pretty steep competition from Apple. Apple's A-series chips in the iPhone have long outperformed the Snapdragon line, and now the company's M-series chips for Macs are upending the PC industry, a market Qualcomm still hasn't really cracked. And Apple recently bought Intel's modem division to make its own 5G radios, another avenue of competition between Apple and Qualcomm. So I wanted to know how Cristiano is thinking about Qualcomm's future six months into his run as CEO. What's working? What's not? Where does he have to make changes to compete? How long will this chip shortage actually last? This is a pivotal moment for the chip industry. And I really wanted to push on how Cristiano is thinking about getting through it. I also wanted to ask something I've always wondered about. Qualcomm is basically the only company that's shipping a 5G radio in the United States. Yep, Apple might eventually have one of its own, but right now it's all Qualcomm. How did that happen? And where does Cristiano see any other competition coming from, if any? I thought his answer was very revealing. Okay, Cristiano Amon, the president and CEO of Qualcomm. Here we go. Cristiano Amon, you are the president and CEO of Qualcomm. Welcome to Decoder. Very happy to be here and good talking to you. I think it's been over a year. 
Yeah, we last spoke when you were the president of Qualcomm a year ago. Now you are also the CEO. I have a lot of questions about that, about what your plans for the company are. But I got a chip executive from one of the leading chip makers in the world on the show. I have to start with the chip shortage. How is it going? How has it impacted Qualcomm? When is it going to be over? Well, very good. Well, thanks for the question. Uh, nice to see you, too. Um, look, here's the situation. This is one of the biggest, I think, uh, supply chain crises we had on chips. But also, it's because of something else, which is chips are now going everywhere. And the percentage of digital in the economy is significantly higher. Virtually everything has been built now, required chips. There's an interesting thing. I was talking with the folks uh, in the Treasury Department that, you know, what we saw with the pandemic, there was a shift from services to goods and people buy more goods uh, than services and then their chips and all those goods. So one thing we learned to the supply chain crisis, if I can, if I can say about something that is positive of, of it, it will be the chips are important. There was an understanding of the importance of chips in our economy, the importance of semiconductor companies. And as a result, a lot of companies that didn't have a direct relationship with semiconductor companies started to have it. Look, it was a challenge. It was a challenge for me, the first year CEO, uh, you know, I took on in uh, 1st of July, dealing with that. But it's also an opportunity. I think we'll be able to leverage on on our assets of having a very large engineering, I think, a capability to design our products across every available capacity out there in a very short period of time. We bet in ourselves, because we bet in ourselves, we believe in what of our volume is going to be, and we make commitments, and we put our scale to work. So in one hand, it was a big challenge, also an opportunity. We are doing better, I will say, than, than probably other companies. We see now significant uh, increase in supply for us as we begin 2022. Some of the capacity expansions planning we put in place are starting to materialize it, and it kind of got reflected in our guide as well for the next uh, fiscal quarter. So it's not over yet, but things are getting much better as we go to the first half of 2022. Can you see the end? Yeah, I, I, for us, uh, we have a very balanced supply and demand equation as we get to summer of 2022. I know the other companies probably uh, are talking about 23 and beyond. Does Qualcomm manufacture its own chips or are you doing designs and someone else is doing manufacturing? We are one of the largest fabulous company. We we never had a fab. We outsource our manufacturing of our chips, uh, has done since the beginning of our company. We work with pretty much everybody. We work with TSMC, with Samsung, with Global Foundries, with SMIC, with UMC, all of the companies. To give you a technically correct answer, we do manufacture one thing. When you talk about material science, and especially a very complex filter technology for 5G or radio frequency signals. We manufacture our own filters. We do that in Munich and in Austria, in Europe. That is fascinating. I didn't know that. The reason I ask about manufacturing is, as I've talked to various executives about the chip shortage, they've all said along the lines of what you just said, demand is really driving the shortage. People want more stuff. Everything has a chip in it now. The capacity wasn't there. Then there were some COVID-related impacts and that sort of thing. 
but it's the manufacturing capacity that has to catch up to demand. That's the end of the chip shortage for real. Are you investing in any of that manufacturing capacity? Are you partnering with any of those companies you mentioned? How does that work for you? Yeah, we're investing indirectly. I think the way the way to look at this is, as I said, because we're betting our in our volume, we're very comfortable making long-term commitments in co-investing with our foundry partners to make sure capacity is there for us. And some of that started to materialize decisions we made early. We took action very, very early in the supply chain crisis, and some of that's already coming to fruition and materializing for us as we enter 22. And the way to think about it, we're indirectly investing as we make a commitment, as we invest together with our partners, so actually putting you know, money down. And uh, because of that, we actually secure significant amount of capacity for Qualcomm uh, in 22. The other last question on this, uh, there's a lot of interest in making sure that manufacturing capacity is distributed around the world, particularly here in the United States. TSMC is building a plant here. There's lots of interest in the administration in building a plant here. Is that something you're directly involved in or are you, are you waiting to see what the actual fabs do? Oh, absolutely. This is an important topic for me. Maybe I'll I'll just uh, share something with you. About a couple of weeks ago, I was elected chairman of the SIA, the United States Semiconductor Industry Association, uh, for this uh, upcoming year. And, uh, you know, in that capacity, working with with my colleagues in the SIA, two of our priorities is to make sure we get CHIPS Act funded, we get FABS Act enacted. This is extremely important. We advocate strongly for a geo-diversified, resilient supply chain. This is so important for economy. I think we know that right now, whether it's, it's the auto industries or anything else you buy, it's very important for our economy, and we needed to make sure that we have not only a resilient but geodiversified investments in the United States of uh, Foundry. It's very important. Even new players, Intel, when they indicated they would like to be a foundry, we raised our hand and said, yeah, we'll work with them, and we're engaged with them as well. We work with anybody. On top of that, I actually really like uh, the current discussions that are being between the Europeans and the United States. They're both trying to solve the same problem and working in coordination because I don't think one one company, one region will be able to solve all of our demands for semiconductor, but we have to do something now to make sure we have a resilient supply chain for semiconductors for the next decades. In talking to people about the, the chip shortage and the supply chain generally, I feel like people have known that we have needed a more resilient, diversified supply chain for quite some time, and then COVID hit, and this happened, and now maybe there's an incentive to do it. Is that your experience, too, that everyone has known this is a problem, but it hasn't been a problem until recently? Yes, we have known that semiconductors will continue to grow, and it wasn't on anyone's radar screen. The fact that you need to have a very reliable, resilient uh, supply chain. You know, it's it's not that I want to say, look, a Qualcomm has done great, but we knew of this. That's the reason, compared to all of our peers, we're probably one of the few companies that really diversify our leading node needs. We use TSMC and Samsung for many, many years. We split our business between two. We have multi-sourcing for exactly this reason. So both across our Samsung and our TSMC on advance, the latest and greatest technology with design on both. But 
I agree with you that this shortage brought this issue to the surface. A lot of companies, especially in the auto industry, didn't even understand there were supply there are semiconductors in their chain, became very aware of this. And I think now it's like this needs to get resolved. I, so I kind of agree with that view. It's interesting. Uh, the car CEOs I've spoken to, it's like a revelation that they were so dependent on ships. When on the other hand, they've all been telling me their cars are turning to smartphones for like five years now. But I think that moment of clarity really hit. Okay. I wanted to start there because I know we have limited time and I didn't want to get away from those questions. No problem. Let's start at the beginning now. You're the new CEO of Qualcomm. That's a new role for you. You were the president of Qualcomm before. What has changed for you now that you're the CEO? When I became president, you know, I was responsible for this semiconductor business, and I started putting, there was back in 2018, started putting the strategy and the execution together to diversify the company. Uh, I saw there was an incredible opportunity for technology in many different end markets. We always been a company focused on mobile. That, that will never change. We, we continue to be successful in mobile. But we had incredible opportunities for Qualcomm across a number of different markets. I think when I became CEO, it was an opportunity to really, you know, solidify that vision, get that vision uh, clearly communicated within not only the entire company of our partners, but also to the market. I've been preparing as I got the CEO job into what was our investor day that we did uh, three to four weeks ago in New York, when we presented that there is a lot of things about Qualcomm that important to be understood. We cannot be defined by a single end market and a single customer relationship. There's a lot more to Qualcomm than that. We have now relevant technologies for so many end markets becoming a company that is powering the edge. And we unveiled that just within the next decade, our addressable market can grow by 7X to $700 billion. And I think my view is that's what changed. It's the responsibility as being president and CEO, to basically execute on one of the largest opportunities in our history. And yes, I do feel the weight of that responsibility on my shoulders, but I'm excited about the opportunity. Is it execution or did we change the strategy at all? I won't say we changed the strategy. It's kind of more than execution. I think it's the ability to build this vision, go bigger, faster, leverage our technology roadmap, which is becoming very relevant because mobile technology is going everywhere, quickly invest in the technologies that we need to execute on this vision, like not what I wanted to do with 15 days on the job, but I had to put a competing public bidding offer for the arriver asset, uh, you know, for ADAS. You know, as soon as I got named CEO, I made the acquisition of a company called Nuvia because we wanted to have uh, the best CPU team in the market, and we, we believe we do, and to be able to build brand new relationships with new customers and new executives for new markets that we're going. And I think that's all uh, part of this, uh, this set of activities. So you can call it execution, but I think there's a, we're definitely in a hurry because I think the opportunity is right in front of us. And uh, we wanted to execute on it as fast as we can. How many people work at Qualcomm? Uh, it's uh, in the order of about 50,000. And where are they mostly located? 
the majority are located in the United States, but we have presence everywhere. Just an example, we have uh, over 10,000 employees in India. We have several thousands of employees across China, Korea, Japan, Europe. So it's a, it's a global company. It's uh, very diversified, and uh, we take pride into probably in the areas that, that we really focus in, like and uh, technology across modem, everything wireless, everything high-performance computing, low-power device. We just look where we find the best possible talent, and uh, we've been building in those locations. That's actually my next question. How is, how is the company structured? How big is the modem division, the computing division? How do you think about that structure? Well, we don't make some of those disclosures, but I, but I'll give you I'll give you a, a well. No, this simple, is a perfect time to make some of those disclosures. No, that's good. I'll give you a simple <laughs> answer. Um, we're a company of predominant engineers. Engineers represent the absolute majority of our employee base. Uh, we're a company grounded in uh, very strong engineering culture. It's uh, it's really one of the few companies that does fundamental R&D. That's the result. That's why we have so many essential patents and so many patents because we focus on not only being an implementer of new standards, we want to create them and we want to be uh, really doing fundamental research. That's why we make Snapdragon to power, you know, one of the most incredible mobile experience, but we also put that into the Mars helicopter and send it to Mars, right? So that's a unique thing about the company. And uh, the majority of, it, of our employees are engineers. And we're focused on two areas. One area that we focus on is everything wireless communication. We know the last mile uh, data is wireless. Everything wireless communication, uh, whether it's cellular, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and everything high-performance computing for battery power device. That's where you see us investing CPU and DSPs, digital signal processors, AI processing, GPU. And where we are right now, the company structure so that we our engineers are divided for our mobile business, our auto business, our RF business and this broad IoT that we kind of presented in New York across consumer, the networking, and the enterprise. Qualcomm made huge investments in 5G. We're coming to sort of the mid-cycle of 5G. You have said 6G will be here by 2030, which is only eight years away. How far ahead are you making technology bets and investments? That's a good question. We usually invest a decade. Um, and I'll give you a perfect example of this. And uh, I'm sure you can go back and see Qualcomm talking about it, right? We talk about connecting physical and digital spaces when it wasn't popular. Well, we talk, we start talking about virtual reality and augmented reality when it wasn't popular. And some of the bets that we made like uh, over a decade that led to incredible technology that enable, for example, the Oculus Quest from Meta, uh, HoloLens from Microsoft, and now people understand the potential of creating digital twins and talk about the metaverse. Well, we're the company that is making the devices that connect the physical world with the digital world. And we start working about 10 years ago. Every generation of wireless, the moment we complete the 5G, we already start working on 6G. And I think that's one unique to Qualcomm. We probably have one of the largest percentage of our revenue dedicated to R&D. And uh, decade is a good answer about everything we started about 10 years in advance. 
Do you rank your bets? Do you think, okay, we got to put some people on the AR and VR stuff because we think that might happen. That's pretty risky. 6G is definitely going to happen. That's less risky. We can invest differently. Do you, do you prioritize your bets that way? Oh, I have a perfect answer for you. Perfect answer for you. And I kind of I will suggest when I just did our last investor day, when we talk about this new vision of Qualcomm, there is a slide that I presented that I said, here's all the industry trends. And I said, nobody here is going to dispute with us that those are industry trends. And here's the answer to your question. One of the things that always helped me in my career, and I think that's also part of uh, Qualcomm, is the ability to understand some of those key trends that are happening ahead of time. And that's how we made make priority calls. We invest on those disruptions. We invest in those trends, and that's how we make our bets, and that's how we stick with those bets. And uh, you may think there's too many things we're doing right now, but we're doing with the one technology roadmap that we have, and it's all based on inevitable trends that we see in front of us. And I can name a few. The digital twins everywhere, which some will call it the metaverse. The other one is the full conversions between mobile and PC. How PCs are becoming communication devices. I'm sure you, what you and I are doing right now is a communication use case for your device. How we think about creating smart devices connected to the cloud 100% of the time to enable digital transformation, all the way to what's going to happen to artificial intelligence. The artificial intelligence that we see today in the data center is just the tip of the iceberg. As you start to bring artificial intelligence to the devices, that's an order of magnitude bigger. It's almost like unlimited addressable market. And that's that's how we make our bets. Is there any, anything that you've ever had to pivot out of? That you made a bet on, on 3D TVs and you're like, ah, oh, that didn't work. You got to shut that down. Yeah, we did. Uh, it's it's just part of being the technology industry. And we always been fortunate that we ha- were always able to leverage the R&D. But for example, I'll, I'll give you two practical examples. At some point in time, we have this vision that TVs are going to converge with mobile as well. Just look at the use cases in your TV right now. You, you stream uh, video now, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, TVs it, are basically giant Android tablets. Giant Android you. tablets. But we're too early. Because we're too early, we needed to support the old and the new. And uh, and at the time, to have to invest in a lot of legacy TV technologies wasn't a great idea. So we pivot you know, out of the TV business, waiting for the next opportunity. Another great example was we start working on data centers with uh, ARM technology, I think, too early as well. And um, while we have some assets, we focus on the future of what the data center is moving at the edge. So we have high-performance computing for data center you know, uh, inference at the edge. But we kind of really focus on the devices and everything that's happening at the edge instead of the data center. Let me push you on kind of that logical next result from the data center. You mentioned mobile and PCs are going to converge and look more like each other than not. That is already happening. Qualcomm is on the third generation of chips and PCs. Microsoft has released some devices that run Windows on Qualcomm processors. They haven't hit. I, I wouldn't say that that's been a huge success. Meanwhile, you know, Apple is a competitor of yours. They're also a partner of yours. They have just shifted their entire laptop line to their own ARM-based chips. It is a success. They've, they've had a performance lead in mobile for a while. Now they have a performance lead over Intel in PCs. What's it going to take for you to to compete there? Because it 
we've seen a lot of generations of these chips and we're kind of waiting for the big inflection point. Yeah, no, this is a great question. And but and, and I think that's the reason you see a lot of uh, generations. And that's why we, consistent with the conversation we had, we start early. If you look what happened right now, we knew that PCs needed to change. And PCs needed to change to what we call next generation PCs. When you buy a phone, you take the phone out of the box, you expect it to be connected Regardless, why is it any different for PCs? Also, as you start to move more and things to the cloud, the PCs being a connected device uh, with a high-performance connectivity, it's kind of a necessity. Now, when we started doing this partnership with Microsoft, we knew that we needed to do a very big change, especially for the Windows ecosystem, which is very, very strong in the enterprise. We need to do a very big change of an established uh, software ecosystem on x86 to ARM. And we knew it would take multiple generations. I'll just give you a case in point. Is right now with Windows 11, which is just launching, that Microsoft can support 64-bit apps emulation on ARM. So for the prior generations, we still have to be able to do some of the applications, but you still didn't have the full capability of Windows, so it's completely transparent to the user. And I think that had an impact on how much volume we could ramp. But our expectation at the time was it will take multiple generations to basically build the ecosystem around ARM. Apple was an incredible, I think, tailwind because Apple just built more scale to the point that now all the developers are saying, I'm gonna develop ARM first. Just look at, for example, a company like Adobe. On top of this, we had another tailwind, which was the, the future of work as we went to the pandemic. And now gaming is becoming a streaming service coming to uh, the PC. So you had to change an entire ecosystem from a PC architecture to a mobile architecture. And I think we're just getting to that inflection point. So it's not a surprise for Qualcomm. If you actually look what we had done in the past, we never made heroic assumptions. Uh, you didn't see me talking, hey, this is the PC is going to be this much percent of our revenue by the time. We knew we needed to switch an entire ecosystem, but we wanted to do all right and do it in a way that we're going to win it. Now, now you ask yourself the question, just look at the work that Apple has done for their products with the M series. And I would say the transition to ARM is now inevitable, inevitable. There, there's, there's no debate. 5G is going to come to your PC. If you're now a flexible workspace employee and you have a huge workstation, you're doing you know, computer-aided design, you're not going to carry that in your backpack. So you're going to have to do that on the cloud using 5G. You, c companies are getting all the data, moving to Microsoft OneDrive and other cloud drive. People collaborate. You're doing collaboration tools like Teams and Zoom. Streaming of gaming is coming. And I think that transition is inevitable. If you look at every company out there, who has the assets to actually make this happen for the Windows ecosystems, that's us. And Wait, I, let, me, and let, me, let me push you, though. Please do. The use cases you've described, the way that that would be executed, is almost what in the old days you would call like a thin client model, right? You've got a big data center. You've got a fast connection, a 5G connection, which happily Qualcomm owns a lot of IP related to. That's great for you. You've got devices with 5G modems. Qualcomm makes a lot of 5G modems. And then you're streaming the games you're sharing the data over OneDrive. Those applications aren't processor intensive. Maybe you're doing CAD 
over some sort of thin client, right? Like you're not doing a lot of heavy duty processing on the client. Apple's innovation is that their clients are wicked fast. So my question is, is, are, is does Qualcomm see the ability to leap over Apple's performance advantage, both in phones and on the desktop? Look, great question. I have two answers for you. So let me start in reverse order. Absolutely. Look, when, when we talk about it, what are we doing in PCs, right? What are we doing in PCs? We have been now investing. We've been waiting for this moment to have an inflection point. We're going to have that with Windows 11. We're investing to have the benchmark of performance of PC across the CPU, the on-device AI, and the GPU. So to date, our products have been focused on leveraging mobile as focused on a consumer device they will have like a two-in-one, an evolution of the tablet. You can think about how you probably can compete with an iPad, as an example, within the Windows ecosystem. That's what we've done today. And understandable, there was limitations on the software to be able to go to the enterprise. Not anymore. And that's the reason we bought Nuvia. We think that is the best CPU team. And you should expect Qualcomm aiming to take the leadership position in performance. We're going to have to execute it. So our first product was going to sample next year, and it's going to be commercial in 23. We've been public about it, and people will be able to measure. But we're aiming to have that benchmark of performance in this industry. Now, here's the second part of your question. Computing is on the devices changing dramatically. Let's just give an example on, on artificial intelligence. This is where I think you're going to see Qualcomm shine because you cannot do those things on the CPU. You need a dedicated hardware. Think about this. You're working with me just doing this that we're doing right now. We're doing a Zoom meeting. All of a sudden, your camera is always ready, looking at you and looking at everything else around you. All of a sudden, somebody show up that uh, right behind you looking over your shoulders. The camera can immediately detect and activate a private screen. The camera can track your eyes and make sure you're looking at the camera at all times with artificial intelligence. The camera can do facial recognitions. On top of that, you're going to have split rendering. As you get mainstream gamings into the device, you need to have the, the performance on the GPU to do that at the same time you're streaming. So I don't think computational requirements are going down, even as you do things on the cloud. And frankly speaking, there are a couple things that hold true in my all of my multiple decades of experience <laughs> working for Qualcomm. Two things hold true. I never heard anybody said, okay, now my internet speed is fast enough. I don't want to go any faster. Never heard that. And never heard, I don't want a faster processor uh, for next generation. So I think we're going to be in good shape. Here's a question I've been dying to ask. You recently announced your newest chip, the Snapdragon 8 Gen 1. You changed the name of the Snapdragon line. You the previous chip was the Snapdragon 888. Snapdragon 8 Gen 1 is like not a great name. Why the change? Why do all chip makers tend to have these extremely difficult names? It's an awesome name. It's an awesome <laughs> name. So, so uh, it's actually, it's, it's super simple. Snapdragon became synonymous of premium Android experience. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's kind of reflected in the consumer. Just if you go to market like China, for example, 80% awareness of the Snapdragon brand. And Snapdragon, the very first Snapdragon was the 8 series or the flagship. 
And, you know, you have to go generation by generation. You put numbers. But at the end of the day, there is an incredible uh, identity of 8-series Snapdragon. Consumers at the point of buying the phone, especially markets that the consumers really care about what's in their, their device to say, does this have the latest Snapdragon 8 series? And we're just simplifying the brand. There's more things that happen than just HN1. We also simplify the brand. It used to be Qualcomm Snapdragon, just Snapdragon now. We removed the Qualcomm part name into the Snapdragon brand. It's everybody recognized that red fireball of Snapdragon. And it's just simple. Single digit eight. Gen one. And uh, the we are after is going to be gen two. I see you, you made some news. You announced <laughs> future product. I've never gotten a CA to announce a future product. That's right. Every uh, year we have a new uh, we have a new Snapdragon. That's not going to change too. We've talked a lot about your future chip roadmap, the purchase of Nuvia, which is uh, great at the CPU side of things. There's a lot of action on the GPU side of things in chips. Do you have a roadmap to compete with the NVIDIAs and the AMDs of the world on, on the graphics pipeline? Here's how you should think about Qualcomm. We have been doing GPUs for the phone space. And then as we evolve into the auto space, go into the auto space, and we always had the highest performance per watt of the industry. And what is good about GPU, once you have the technology, it's high-level, scalable, it's parallel processing, you can scale up and down. So as you start Qualcomm going to new end markets, more into the what we're doing in, uh, you know, in automotive or digital chassis, as well going into the full market of the PC, you're going to see the Qualcomm GPU scaling up and being extremely competitive. We ship probably more GPUs than anybody else because we do it on phones. And uh, this is a technology that we're very proud of. And uh, we're very excited about what we're going to be able to show as we get into the the competitive uh, PC space. What's the timeline of that? Well, as we said, the first... PC with new tech, PC chip with new technology. We're going to sample in 22 for devices launching 23. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we need to talk about 5G radios. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com US slash innovate. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, 
Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back. You know, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk to the CEO of Qualcomm about whether or not 5G is real. I'm curious. It seems like Qualcomm is the only company that can ship a 5G radio in the United States. Apple bought Intel's business. They haven't shipped anything. I think they're still using your modems. One, I'm curious, how did Qualcomm end up in the position where it dominates the entire market for 5G radios in the United States? And two, where are we on the curve? Is it fast enough? Are you seeing the promise of 5G? Because so far, it seems like a lot of the promised applications have not really come to pass. Lots to talk about that. So let me start with the promise of 5G first. It's always music to my ears when when I hear that. I remember in the 4G, people say, well, what I'm going to do with this technology until the smartphone show up and you put a computer in your hands. Now we have a very mature society to see the value of cellular and people say, why I'm not getting it today? That's that's awesome, actually. This is very good position to be in. The problem with 5G is it takes a little bit of time on the infrastructure. We've done better on the device sides, but it takes a little bit more on the infrastructure because you have to densify the network. You need more t- cell towers. And as a result, it takes longer to build than the initial build out that you just could put a new equipment in an existing tower. You need to get new cell towers and get new permits. And it's happening. It's happening in a global scale. The number of carriers investing globally in 5G and densifying the network is happening, but just take a little bit more time. And uh, it's very clear, we're gonna get there. And as we get there and we started making use of some of the new frequencies of 5G, like the millimeter wave frequencies, you're going to have gigabit speeds at every device. And, and that's going to make a difference. Now, let me tell you what's happening from a technology standpoint. We were for a tech summit in Hawaii two weeks ago. That's the show that we always announce our product lineup. We did the words first. Now, 3.5 gigabit per second uplink. And I actually did a live call with Verizon Wireless uh, from the event. So when you start thinking about an uplink of this order magnitude, by the way, the YouTubers in the audience, they were like <laughs> cheering. They were like clapping and they were like, unbelievable. Somebody's listening to us. But when you think about this type of uplink, a lot of things can change. Social can change. People can broadcast themselves. Some will like it, some won't. Some won't. But I would just talk about YouTube. Think about how the ability to access computational resources on the cloud and uh, collaborate on documents, all those things. And I think that's going to start to bring a lot of developers uh, to it. So it's just a matter of time. We're starting to see changes already in user behavior. We're moving towards an unlimited data rate everywhere. With whatever experience people had in their home and their office uh, with Wi-Fi is going to be everywhere. Unlimited data rates, high speeds, high uplink speeds, and uh, the developer ecosystem is just at the beginning of that ramp. Now, the last part of the question is, I don't like the word dominant, but uh, the way I would argue... <laughs> uh, I would imagine not. Yeah. The way I would argue is, 
we're very focused on this. This is one of the many things we do for a living, and we always have done more than Qualcomm. is called Quality Communications. That's our name. And we have been the leader in every single generation of wireless. Not, it's not a coincidence. Uh, we invest, we have one of the best teams, and we always push the, the bar. So as long as, as, long as uh, wireless communication remain important, there's always going to be room for Qualcomm, and we're always, always going to be first. Who's your biggest competitor in modems in the United States? Uh, we have competitors everywhere. You know, Apple, for example, Apple said they're going to develop their own modem. When our New York, we assume, we basically said, look, we're assuming that the iPhone launching in 23, Qualcomm is now projected shares 20%. By the way, let me give you some data points. Usually, you know, when you launch a product, you need commercial software and hardware on the product about one year before it gets to the shelf. So we're assuming that they're going to have their modem and they're going to have all the capabilities, including millimeter wave, and that's our projections. But the way to think about it is the customers, when they get scale, they sometimes develop their own modems. People sometimes ask the question, you didn't ask this time, why don't you build your own foundry? Well, because we're not good <laughs> at that. We're good at building chips and, and designing chips. We're not good at the foundry. But sometimes customers want to do everything. And the way I look at this is not news to us. And as we always had Samsung, for example, they had their own modem and their own chip. And over the years, I think the Qualcomm relationship with Samsung remains stable. And right now is an upswing trajectory as we're gaining share. So we keep focused on doing what we do best and see what happens. But my iPhone 13 Pro Max, long name, has a Qualcomm modem in it right now. Good for you. Well, they're not shipping any others. Are there any phones in the market that don't have Qualcomm modems in the United States? I would imagine you're going to find some of the uh, entry-level prepaid phones that don't have Qualcomm modem in the United States. Here's what uh, will make the United States very unique. For the phones that you're going to buy in an operator, the operator in the United States, and that's why it's a very safe uh, seller environment compared to what you see in some uh, other countries, the operator in the United States will test all the phones and make sure that they meet the latest standards. They're compatible with the network. And, and they made a selection on the technology that goes into the phones they put on their shelf. As a result, I think the U.S. operators always select the best performing modem at the time. When you go, for example, to emerging markets, sometimes when the OEM controls the channel, because it's a channel that sells consumer electronics, and the operator has no control on the channel, then you find all sorts of stuff. And uh, maybe that's the difference. The reason I ask is because Qualcomm just made a phone. The first phone I think I've seen directly from your company. It's called the smartphone for Snapdragon Insiders. It's very much not meant to compete at mass scale, I don't think. But I'm curious, you didn't build a foundry. Why make a phone? We don't make phones. That phone has been designed by ASUS. It's been designed to 
a special set of specifications just to highlight some of the capabilities of the Qualcomm processor. It was a limited production device, uh, only for Snapdragon Insiders. We have uh, one of the fastest growing things for Qualcomm is as we get to mature smartphone society, people care what's behind the glass. They, it's the number one consumer electronic purchase decision for many users. And it's remarkable how educated consumers are right now on technology. They want to know about technology. They want to know the capabilities of the processor. And, and we're positively surprised to see how many fans exist out there for Snapdragon. And uh, we created this insider program. It's been incredibly successful, multiple millions of users in a very short period of time. I think we we probably announced approaching, you know, four, if not exceeded four million users since we launched, which is probably less than a quarter. And um, we built with ASUS, is the same company that builds the Republic of Games, for example, device for gamers. They built a device just for the insiders, a version that highlights Snapdragon. We're not in the film business. We actually have a horizontal platform that enable everyone, and that's why we always been uh, successful. I think the horizontal model, I always believe that the horizontal model is going to be better than the vertical model because then you don't have one company doing all the innovation. You can have the collective innovation of all the companies. So a, a phone to highlight the chip and its capabilities, that's because... You know, you would sell a Snapdragon chip to some phone maker. They would add their differentiation. They would use your features or not. Then they would have to go to a carrier. The Verge covers how the carriers interfere in phone design quite closely. They would make some decisions. It's hard for you to get your innovations directly to consumers, right? So you build the phone. You can sell it directly to some set of Snapdragon fans and show them all the things you're working on. The intention was uh, to build the phone to show some of the capabilities of the chip. For example, one of the things that we did with that phone, when a phone gets built, right, one of the decisions that OEMs make is how many different frequency bands you're going to put in that phone. And you say, this phone is going to go to this market. I'm going to put all the frequency bands that are required by this carrier, maybe some other for roaming. One of the things we did with that phone, we put every frequency band non to mankind, we put every single band, <laughs> every single band. It's gonna work everywhere. Also, the other thing that we do, once we build every new chip, there's something that we do which is called the MTP. I think the engineers that are familiar with this, they probably know about the MTP. Every new chip of Qualcomm, we build actually a phone. We build a phone. Every new chip will build a phone. It's called the mobile task platform. But it's a phone that we ship to our customers that they start developing their software as they develop in their own phone. So actually, one of the secrets people don't know about Qualcomm, every new chip we do, we build a phone ourselves. And actually, there are two types of devices. One is the MTP. That has a little bigger. It has a lot of probes that people can put in to get data from the device. The other one is called the QRD, the Qualcomm Reference Design. <laughs> and you're going to look at it, it's like a phone. And we take that phone and we test that across every corner of the globe. We test this phone everywhere. We validate the technology. So, so it's performance at its best. That's one of the things we're doing with the insiders, just giving them a phone that is like, especially from an, uh, a, a modem in RF is the Qualcomm gold standard, if you, if you think it that way. We have to take one more break, but when we come back, I asked Christiana what he thought might surpass the smartphone as the essential piece of technology for consumers every day. And his answer, well, we'll see if it surprises you. We'll be right back. 
Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. Phones are interesting. The smartphone, I think there's a very good argument that it is the most important new product in the history of technology, maybe historically and forever. Like everyone in the world has a phone. They're going to buy a phone. They're going to buy another phone in two years. Like It is just the biggest tech market I can think of. Is there another market like that in your future that you can identify? Is it AR and VR or is it just lots of new markets? Of course there is. And I look, I know we talk a lot about phones, but look, the story of Qualcomm right now is very different. Yes, there is a huge phone opportunity. We're going to be there. Absolutely, we're going to be there. But the technology we develop for the phone market is changing the automobile, it's changing the PC, it's changing VR and AR devices, it's basically changing how you think about the home or the enterprise transformation of the home. There's a lot of the, how it's changing the Wi-Fi uh, access point in the home, uh, smart IoT devices. It's changing the enterprise in a very big way. And that's kind of reflected in the plan for Qualcomm going forward. And it's not just a plan. If you look at what we did at the end of this fiscal year, and the market was surprised. I think they were so obsessed looking into Qualcomm and the relationship of Apple, and they were not seeing what's happening. We had over $10 billion of non-handset revenue, and the non-handset revenue represent now 38% of Qualcomm revenues. And I think that's a sign that's not only that there's opportunity there. It's already happening and happening at scale. And I think we have a number of bets that could be as big as phones. And I'll give an example of one which I think is more futuristic, but we're going to get there. As augmented reality becomes more pervasive, I can see that we're going to buy a set of glasses that's going to be a companion of your phone for a while, and it's, that's going to last for a long time until the glasses become standalone. But why you would argue that maybe humans won't use a big helmet? They would use something like that. They use like a, a regular glasses. You can put cameras on it. You can render things. And the simplistic way to describe this to you. When all of a sudden we started to see iPads and we started to see Android tablets, all of a sudden you have an application and you render that application a different way in a bigger screen. And you can start with something as simple as you render some applications or notifications and things that are in your phone in addition to that 
the screen or phone is going to render to your glasses with augmented reality. Then you get information from the glasses that will create new set of applications that they, from that you also have interaction with the phone. So I think augmented reality glasses can be as big as phones and will start as a companion to the phone. So let me ask you this question that I ask everybody about AR glasses. I already know what the killer app for AR glasses is. It's the thing I want the most. I want to look at somebody that I've met before and have the glasses tell me their name because I'm horrible at faces and names. That's it. I, I think you probably sell that product to everybody in the world. How do you build that application without building a worldwide facial recognition database? Um, look, there's many more applications than that one. Let me let me just. But that's uh, the killer app. Uh, there's more. I think there's more killer app than that. So let me t let me try to give you another choice. But, wait, uh, but answer that question. Can you build that application? That. Okay. Uh, I think it's possible to build that application, and you can do that application in many different ways. For example, you could build that an application that's going to be useful for you. There's going to be camera in your glasses. You see somebody's face, and all you do, you get that face that you just map on your device. You go to the cloud, and you go to what's publicly available on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Instagram, and you just compare and contrast, and you say... This is some of the choices for you in the same way that you do that today, you know, and I feel like when you have some when you have somebody name and you can go in and say, do I know this person or not? So I think at the end of the day, you can do build this in many different ways. But also, I, I think we have a tendency to think this way. Let's talk about a different application of the glasses, which has been credible. I'm going to give a, an example, for example, for education. If you're in a classroom. And all of a sudden, you can superimpose images on your glass or, or virtual reality. You can go to different places. You can you can watch how this thing, it happened if you're studying history. You can be in a virtual classroom. There's plenty. But I'm going to give one which I think is going to be possible and is very easy to understand. We have been doing as, as working in every generation of wireless. How does people communicate? Something as simple as communicating between individuals. And when we started is, well, with 2G cellular, 2G, the, the promise of CDMA and the capacity of CDMA, can we make sure that everybody has the ability to have a cell phone? So you can take a telephone with you and every individual on earth can have a telephone. That was 2G cellular. 3G cellular, it was, you saw, started to see the beginning of data and that with that you came things like email and everybody holding onto their Blackberries and you have now two ways of communicating. You'll be able to talk to somebody, you can text or send an email. 4G, whole different ball game. And when you look what we have right now with 4G, people actually, they're doing less and less voice calls. They just hold their phones. But then something happened. It took a pandemic to finally create video telephony as the killer app, right? People were trying to chase that. Since the early days of 3G, oh, the killer app is going to be video telephony. Well, it didn't really materialize it, but then it took a pandemic, and now it's the killer app. So much so that people now get a video call, and they're holding their phones right in front of their faces to do a Zoom or Teams call, and it's actually changing behavior. You now your phone, you, you hold it with your hands to text it, or you hold it like in front of your face for you to have a call. So, Here's how you could have voice calls with a glass. I could have a glass that you're wearing right now, and then a call comes in. You could render the person right in front of you, and that's where I think that's one other way to think about applications on, on the metaverse. You can have a hologram or a telepresence of somebody in front of you. And then as your face is moving, 
and you have sensors in a glass that detect your face moving with artificial intelligence. You can render yourself without a camera looking at you to the person as well. So I think we have the ability to fundamentally change how we're going to communicate to each other as we take advantage of those new technologies. And that could be a killer app. Yeah. Are you invested on the display side of these glasses? I'm very curious what display technology will win out for these glasses. Right now, I think we just had John Hankey from Niantic on. Qualcomm has built a reference design with them. Waveguide displays. That's what we see everywhere. Do you think that's it, or do you think there's something else? Our model is we... It's the same thing, for example, in camera, we, I would argue, have one of the best image uh, signal processors in the industry. That's why we always have the highest DXL mark score, but we partner with image sensor companies like Sony and with uh, Samsung. And I think that would be the same on a display. We're going to be partnered. We're going to be doing co-development, put them in their reference designs. I think display technology is getting there. It's probably tracking a little behind some of the silicon and processing for some of the applications we'll start with. We just talk about it, but we see a roadmap to get that done. And it's fair to think about within the next four to five years, we're going to have devices that's going to be doing just exactly what we just discussed. Four to five years? Do you think there's a consumer device in four to five years? I think so. We have consumer devices starting now, but with the maturity of the technology to get to that type of killer application that you and I just talked about it, I think that's very realistic. Last silly question. I feel like we talk about the metaverse AR VR a lot is an industry trend. The other industry trend that is somewhat connected to it is crypto NFTs. Do you personally own any crypto or NFTs? And is Qualcomm making any company bets? Fantastic question. It's not a silly question at all. One of the incredible things that we announced as part of the new Snapdragon 8 Gen 1, <laughs> he has now the ability to mint and generate NFTs. More and more you have artists creating a digital content and uh, you can now mint and create your NFT from your smartphone with Snapdragon 8 Gen 1. I think that's gonna enable incredible scale of those new technologies and that's an awesome feature by the way. What about you? Have you dabbled? Have you made any crypto purchases? Do you own any NFTs? No, I haven't had time to do it. I've been <laughs> busy. And you see ya. <laughs> All right, Christiana, that's a great place to end it. Thank you so much for coming on Decoder. I really enjoyed it. Oh, I love doing it. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks again to Christiana Oman for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like Decoder, leave us that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott, and it was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.